a family tree. We all have ancestry. Some of us, we like to trace it. Some, maybe not. Actually, this morning. So every McDougal clan, or every clan in Scotland, has a plaid. Two plaids, right, for the ones who have been there the longest. But the McDougals have two plaids. This is one of them. It's official. It has a tag on the back, made in Scotland, McDougal Tartan. I'll wear my other one on Christmas. But everyone has history. Everyone has family. And we're going to walk through and look at Jesus' history, his family tree, if you will, and walk through this genealogy. But for the modern reader, it might seem a very dull way to start a book. I mean, you read through this and think, okay, there's a whole bunch of names, so what? I'm going to try and help you walk through this a little bit by acknowledging things that maybe that are going to be so easily observed. Some things... Matthew puts in here, you may not see or have not seen, so hopefully I will bring out some things that have not been noticed before. But it seems like rather a lifeless way to begin a book. If you want to pique someone's interest, you really don't start with a list of names. But this is how Matthew begins. This is how I choose books that I read, especially westerns. I like to read westerns. But if that first few lines does not grab me and does not pull me into the story, I'm not reading the book. But if it can suck me in right away, then I'll finish reading it. So I have to say for myself, I used to think, well, what's the point, right? This really can't be very useful, very profitable, right? And, and to be honest, I would tend to sort of jump past the genealogy and get to the meat of what's really here because I want to get to the narrative because the list of names really doesn't do much for me. And at times I have to be honest that when I really decided to try and read through it, my mind starts wandering. You know, I start thinking about whether or not I fed the cat or did I change oil in the car and before I know it I forgot where I'm at. So we have a tendency sometimes to come to these genealogies and think there's really no profit to them or there's, there's nothing that we can learn from them. And sometimes we come to them and the names are really difficult. For the first part of this genealogy most of these names might be really familiar but when we get to the third section some of them aren't so familiar. And if you don't have a good grasp of your Old Testament history, then much of these names won't mean much to you. So it's really hard for us to see that there's a benefit here. And normally we would like to go to Matthew's Gospel and read the Sermon on the Mount, although it can be painful to read, but nonetheless there's great truth there. Or maybe we'd like to read some sections on, on parables or some of the miracles that take place in Matthew's Gospel, but we really wouldn't want to start with the genealogy. But there's a lot of great truth here for us. And there's some things that we need to understand about the family trees, culturally speaking. Generally, this was something that was important to the peoples back then. Most of them would memorize because they couldn't afford to write these things down and to keep track of their genealogy. Most of them would memorize them. And put them to memory. So this is important because when we look at Matthews, I'm going to just highlight something to you to show you how he uses a particular device to help us to remember this genealogy, to not forget it. He writes it for memory. But you could pretty much even today stop a Bedouin Arab somewhere and ask him, and he could probably lay out his whole lineage for you for an hour without taking a break. So for them in those times, this was important for them. So for Matthew and his readers, and we know that his audience was Jewish, so for Matthew and his audience, these things were important. Beginning with the genealogy was very important. Understanding your history was important. Knowing where you came from was important. Family trees were important to the nation of Israel because this is how they determined their membership, right? And their inheritance. 
We'll talk about Tamar in just a little bit, but these things were important to them. To understand the plot, the lot of land that, that was apportioned to them as a tribe, they needed to be able to trace all of that. And so knowing their family tree was very important. The great rabbi Halal, he was boasted of being the fact that he could trace his lineage all the way back to King David. And Josephus, when he began his autobiography, he began with his pedigree. They were important. You look at Philippians 3, right? We have a great establishing pedigree for the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is Paul the sinner, but in Philippians 3 we have Paul the Pharisee. And he lays out his pedigree for us, right? To help us to see that if anyone could boast, he could boast more than anyone else when it comes to things of the flesh. Well, Herod the Great, he was half and half. He was half Jew and half Edomite. And because he was not found officially in the line of the line of David and so on, he destroyed all the genealogies. They used to be kept in the temple and he destroyed all of them because he figured, look, I'm not going to have anyone upstage me. So he destroyed all the genealogies, which is very interesting. So this thought comes by Bell. He says, since Herod destroyed all the genealogies, there is no Jew today who can claim with certainty and authority to be a son of Abraham and a son of David, except Jesus. Here is the only preserved genealogy in the world today. Intriguing thought, is it not? See, I'm giving you something you probably didn't know before. Here we go, all right? Specifically then, if you were a priest, you had to be able to trace your lineage. When they went off into exile, as, as Matthew's going to lay out for here, the deportation to Babylon, when they were off in exile, they had to be able to establish their line. When, when they returned back to Jerusalem and that, they had to be able to confirm the fact that they were from a priestly line. John's parents, both of them from a priestly line. They had to be able to discern that. The people in general had to be able to discern this, to establish their inheritance and their place in the, in the promised land. And then if you were a king especially, and if you're going to come and you're going to declare yourself to be of the line of David, and you're going to declare yourself a king, then you must be able to back that up with lineage. So Matthew, knowing that he is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the king, he knows that he has to answer all of these questions, and therefore he gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to look at everything that's here. I'm not going to go name by name. I'm just not going to do that. If you want to do that with your family, have at it. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that with you. But there are some things I wanted to look at in regards to genealogy of Christ. Things to put in our mind as we walk into this time of the year and as we focus on the gift of the Son of God to us. And really, we could take Matthew chapter 1 and divide it this way. Verses 1 through 17, God coming to us. Verses 18 through 25, the end of chapter 1, it is God with us. If you want a simple outline for Matthew chapter 1, that's it. But we're going to look at, first of all, Jesus' family tree provides a bridge to the New Testament. So there is this old saying, I picked it up somewhere, can't remember where I heard it, known it for years, but the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. There are so many of these things that were given in the Old Testament, and they were there, but not as bold and open, so on, right? But Matthew's going to give us prophecies as we walk further into his gospel a little bit. But then all of a sudden you have this bridge, this chasm that comes, and you have the 400 silent years. That's between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple, this was the ending of the 400 silent years. And the reason why it's called the 400 silent years is because during that time, in between Malachi and Matthew, the events that take place in the Gospels, God gave no prophecy. The Holy Spirit was not moving, not in the way of giving prophetic word. 
So during that time, there was silence, but God was at work. There were prophecies given in Daniel that were being brought to fulfillment, but now all of a sudden you have the beginning of God consummating what He had promised in the Old Testament. Now all of a sudden the silence is broken. And first we have the Old Testament ends with the Medo-Persian Empire. The New Testament begins with Rome in charge. It's important to understand. Nation of Israel are under the boot heel of the Gentiles. They have been. If you look back at the prophets, all the prophets would indicate they would date their prophetic works by a monarch, and it was usually one of Israel or Judah. But when you look at Zechariah, you notice that his is dated by a Gentile monarch. Why? Because the times of the Gentiles had begun. They were in exile. started with the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was taken away in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, and then you had the southern kingdom was taken away in three phases to Babylon. Daniel and his buddies went with the first phase, and then you had two more after that, and then Jerusalem was destroyed. So this is the life context in which is this, this is given. This is the life context in which Matthew's audience is living as they read these things. Not only that, but the Old Testament ends with the Aramaic language. The New Testament starts with the Greek language, and this was the lingua franca of the day. It was an exact and complete language, and therefore it was very fitting for God to use. Hebrew, I like to describe it as, and I teach both Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew, I like to describe as being very pictorial. It is where we find all the prophecies and the forms and the visions and the symbols. And then the New Testament, which you have Greek, is very precise. You have the fulfillment of everything. And so now we have the time of fulfillment. And this became the language of trade and everyone read it. So if there was a, a decree to be put out through all of the Roman Empire, it was to be done in Greek. Whether you spoke Latin, Aramaic, didn't matter, whatever. Greek was the language in which everyone communicated. It was so important that according to tradition, 70 scholars sat down and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And this was the Bible for the early church. And most of the quotations in the New Testament come from the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was interesting as we move to the New Testament and we see this in the Gospels, the mention of synagogue. In the Old Testament, there is no mention of synagogue anywhere. Why? Because it was something that came about during the exiles. When they were exiled into Assyria and to Babylon, they didn't have the temple anymore. They couldn't go there to worship. So they began to meet in synagogues. And now we find this in the Gospel narratives and the New Testament. Matthew is that perfect bridge between these things. He is tying all of this stuff together. Matthew is going to show us, continue over and over, the fulfillment. Thus the prophet said, thus the prophet said, and here is the fulfillment of that. So it is a perfect bridge between Old and New Testament, even though this isn't the first book, and we need to know this, this isn't the first book written in the New Testament. The first book was what? James, right? That was the first book actually written. But it's very fitting that Matthew is placed here because of the way that it provides a transition for us. It shows us that Jesus Christ is part of history and that all Jewish history prepared the way for His birth. Matthew only gives us a sampling of the names that are here, but nonetheless we see that God, moving in His providence, He ruled and overruled, but bring about this perfect time when His Son was going to be sent, or as Paul puts it in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So here is how Matthew begins. Verse 1, the first line. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now, I like how he reverses the names here because he's going to lead us right into verse 2 and talk about Abraham. This is very interesting that he does this. He is going to neatly tie all of this together, this genealogy. But it begins with this statement, a record of the genealogy. Now, you wouldn't know this in English, but I'll just tell you it in Greek. If you read this in Greek, and I have this up on the screen for you, that this is the exact same wording that you would find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. So a Jew reading this, who would speak Greek, and they would see how Matthew began this, their mind would immediately go to Genesis. And they would think about the statements in Genesis, and especially chapter 5, verse 1. Why? Because that is where we have a genealogy of Adam. Right? And there we have the statement, so-and-so had so many children, lived so many years, and then he died. So-and-so had so many children, lived so many years, and then he died. Why? Because it was an affirmation of the fact that God's word is reliable. He told Adam and Eve, if you violate this command, right, you shall surely die. So one of the things that Matthew does with this is this early statement is he makes a connection between this genealogy and that to help us understand that there is a new beginning, there is a new creation, and there is new life. What followed the old Adam was death, but what follows the second Adam is life. It's amazing how he starts, right? All of this stuff he's just going to tie together with a simple phrase that brings it together for us. How he immediately with the first line creates this bridge between the Old Testament and the New. The fact that he would link this genealogy with that genealogy. Right? Just by the simple wording. F.F. Bruce then comments on this. And he says, Christ and the New Covenant are securely linked to the age of the Old Covenant. So looking at verses 1 through 17, Jesus' family tree and its importance. There are two genealogies in the New Testament we know of. Matthew and Luke, right? We understand that in Luke's genealogy goes from chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, and then Matthew's chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The interesting thing is that if you look at the two genealogies side by side, if you look at Luke's genealogy, he begins with Jesus and he works backwards to Adam, to the Son of God. Okay, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. So this is important for his purpose and his intent. Matthew, however, notice how he begins. He begins with the past and moves to the present. He begins with Abraham and he ends with Jesus Christ. So each of them have a reason for why they give the genealogy. Each of them have a reason for how they word the genealogy and the order they put it in. Why? Because they have an intended purpose, an intended audience, and a message that they want to convey. Our task is to figure out what they're trying to communicate. What's also interesting is that when you look at them, they basically reflect the genealogy in Matthew and Luke. They reflect the lines of Joseph and Mary. Matthew's reflects Joseph's line, and Luke's reflects Mary's line. Now here's what's interesting. If you look at Matthew, who is addressed more often in Matthew's gospel? Joseph. Notice this in verse 19 of chapter 1 of Matthew. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child that she has conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. We have these interactions with Joseph, more prominent in Matthew's Gospel, but if you go to Luke's Gospel, Mary is more in focus than Joseph is. And the interesting thing is that each is identified as a descendant of David. So just as John the Baptist came from a pure priestly line of his father and his mother, both of a priestly line, Jesus also came from a full blood, right, Davidic line in his father and his mother. So when we look at Matthews, the focus is on the royal line, those who actually sat on the throne. When you look at Luke, we're looking at the legal line from the oldest son and the next and so on, and it didn't actually have to sit as king upon the throne. So that is the difference between the two. And for those who didn't know that, there you go, another freebie. So Matthew gives us a lot of amazing stuff here. And I just challenge you, right, to, that as families, we do this, I, I, well, at least our family, we do. We sit down and we read through the, the gospel narratives, right, for Christmas. And we'll do this as a body on Sunday. But take time to think through the things that are recorded for us, right? If every word is important, then even lists of names mean something. And God wants us to know them. So we come to Matthew 1, 1 through 17, Jesus' family tree here in Matthew then. He begins with Abraham, the hero of the Old Testament, right? The book of Genesis. He is the patriarch through, a, it, through which Israel can trace all of their origin. Everything goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? So he is going to move from Abraham, then he's going to move to talk about David. But everything is grounded in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12. Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees. God calls him into a new land. He's going to take him into Canaan. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. He makes promises to Abraham. It's an eternal covenant. And he promises several things. You're going to have land. You're going to have seed. And you're going to have blessing. And the blessing is going to be universal. Thus it includes all of us. Right? We are all, in, spiritually speaking, children of Abraham. But God made this covenant. So God is going to then confirm this covenant, and he's going to establish a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. He's also going to do it in Deuteronomy 30. He's going to have the Palestinian covenant, covenant in regards to the land. And then Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant, but all of these flow out of the Abrahamic covenant. So it is appropriate that Matthew begins with Abraham because that's where everything starts. Chapter 12 of Genesis, that's the pivot of all the rest of the scriptures. Because it's the pivot point of all of history. Because now is when God is going to bring about His plan of redemption in time and in space. So Matthew begins with the beginning. He then moves to David, who's the first considered the true king of Israel. And thus God made a covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, promising that this would be an everlasting kingdom. And thus he would have an heir who would come from his line. Thus Jesus Christ would sit upon the throne forever. Then he traces this royal line of Judah down to the end of the monarchy, which is in the exile. So we have verses 11 and 12, we have reference to deportation to Babylon. This happens in three phases. But now comes the end of Jerusalem. Now comes the end of the kings of Israel. And now they are under the boot heel of the Gentiles. So Matthew gives us this broad sweep. There's a whole bunch of history here. Go back and learn it if you don't know it. Read the Old Testament. There's so many amazing things there. 
And Matthew expects us to know all of this stuff, especially when he lists the names. Okay? So here's what's interesting. As he gives us a division, it's threefold. Starting from Abraham, then to David, he mentions in verse 6, okay? Then to David, and then to the deportation of Babylon, verse 12. And he provides a bridge between verses 11 and verse 12 as he moves to talk about. So these are the pivot points. So he mentions in verse 17, there are 14 generations. So notice me, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon... To the Messiah, 14 generations. Matthew likes numbers. Remember this. If you read through his gospel, notice how many times he has miracles, 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 and then he has teaching, teaching, teaching. He likes these groupings. He likes putting in numbers. So here we have 14, 14, and 14. Now here's what's interesting. If you look at David's name and the letters that make up his name in Hebrew, they are used numerically to represent numbers. And if you add them up, they equal 14. It is likely, because much of this would be put to memorization, that Matthew ordered it this way, 14, 14, 14, lining up with David's name equals 14 numerically, if you add up right the sum. He did this as a way to memorize this chronology, if you will this genealogy of Jesus Christ. It was a way in which they could memorize. You go to Proverbs and we get a lot of these things that are used in Hebrew to help us to memorize things. Three things the Lord hates. Four He right, despises. Different things like that are help, use, useful tools to help us to memorize. So this is what Matthew is doing here. The other thing that's interesting that the focus is on the Messiah. So notice verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Ha Christos in Greek. Christos comes from Krio, which means to anoint. In other words, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And four times he mentions this. Verse 1, verse 16, Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Verse 17, so all the generations, right, tracing all the way down from Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Verse 18, again, reference to the fact that he is the Messiah over and over. He is the the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. So what we need to remember is the fact that for most of us as, as English readers, contemporary readers, we look at Christ and we think it's just the surname of Jesus, but it's not. It is a title. And Matthew wants us to understand that he means this in the fullness of the sense. In other words, if a Jew is reading this, they understand what Matthew is declaring is that Jesus is from the line of David. He is the Messiah, not a Messiah, the Messiah. He is the true King of Israel. He is from the line of David, and he has come to establish his kingdom. So all of these things are so crucial for Matthew as he lays them out for us. But what I find interesting, and these are the last points I want to look at, and these are the things that I'm going to hover on, is in this genealogy that he gives us, this family tree, we see are those who are well-known, those who are unknown, and we have those who are the unusual. The three different kinds of people that Matthew highlights here. The well-known. We all know Abraham. We all know David, right? We all know them. We know their story. We learned them in Sunday school when we were kids. We were raised up on these things. But the interesting thing is that as you move through this, 
through the first two sections, all the names are pretty familiar. But when you get to the third section, all of a sudden, he's got a series of names that are rather unknown. Unless you put much time in studying the Old Testament and the events that happen. So he goes from this well-known to these unknowns. Now, I find this interesting because when you look at the genealogy, there are also names that are left out because Matthew wants to do 14, 14, 14, right? He's got an order to this. There are names that he doesn't include here, but they are a part of the family tree of Jesus Christ. Now, hang with me on this. This is so astounding to me because we do this in our life. There are people in the church that we can think of by name. Charles Spurgeon, right? Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jacobus Arminius, whoever it is, right? We can think. Wesley, we can think of all of these individuals that we know of from our history, okay? We know the names. And they were important as a part of the history of the church and how it unfolded and how it went. And God did amazing things through a lot of these men. John Owen, I've been thinking about recently. John Owen had 11 children and they all died. Can you imagine that? 11 children. Two of his sons died around the same time. Can't imagine what that would have been like to go through that. And the period when he lost two of his sons near the same time period, he spent more time doing ministry, which helps me understand how he coped with it probably kept himself busy in the work of the Lord because this is where he found answers. This is where he found comfort. This is where he found peace. But we know all of these names. But then there are those who we don't know. Maybe they're not familiar to us. Someone mentions their name, but we don't know who they are. And what about those who aren't even mentioned at all? Thinking of Spurgeon and John Owen. It's amazing the amount of lives that have been touched by those two men. I mean, the proliferation of writing. I mean, those two men wrote so many things, it is just mind-boggling. How Spurgeon did the things that he did and wrote the things that he wrote. I, I wonder if either of those men ever slept. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. You know that both of those men came to Christ as a result of individuals that are never mentioned in history whatsoever? We don't even know their names. The one who led Spurgeon to, to a relationship in Christ was a guest speaker in a little chapel and Spurgeon happened to duck in there because the weather was bad. It's snowing outside like it is here. So he ducks in there to this little chapel to hear this message by a no-name guy and he referred to him as being stupid, literally. He called the man stupid, he said, because he kept saying scripture over and over and over again. And in the end, <laughs> the Lord redeemed him and he came to Christ by hearing that man, and we don't know the man's name. Listen to me, you may not be famous, but God can do amazing and miraculous things through your life. I did a message years ago on the staff of Moses. And my whole point was, if God can do something miraculous in so many ways through this dead piece of wood, imagine what he can do through a living person. There are no little people with God. There are no small places, right? Just a mighty God. Some of these things we may not pick up as we first read through the genealogy, but they're here nonetheless. One of the things that really stand out to us is the most unusual. And, and this is so cool to me. 
because Matthew is giving a genealogy just as they would do in the Old Testament, but they never mention women in their genealogies. Never. Go back to Genesis. So-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, and on down the line. Father, 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 father. No mother. Why? Because their inheritance and everything was passed through the father. Right? So then you come to Matthew. Here you are. You're of Jewish descent. This is your history, your background. You're reading this genealogy, and he frames it just like a good Jew would. And you read through this, and what do you see? You see a series of women, <laughs> three of them, in the genealogy of the Messiah. That's huge. That's huge. There's four of them all together. The first one is Tamar. And I'm a little slow on the uptake. I'm a bit thick upstairs. It takes away a while for things to penetrate. So I know the story of Tamar, but then all of a sudden it's like, right? Should have added the eight. All of a sudden it, it hits me, right? Tamar. What did she do? She plays a harlot, right? She becomes pregnant by Judah. Well, what's the whole story behind that? She's married to Judah's son, Ur. Ur dies not long after their marriage. So, according to custom, what they should do, she then marries Judah, or, or Judah's next son, Onan, right? The brother of Ur. So that they could carry on the family line, the inheritance, right? The lineage, all of that. Well, then Onan dies not long after. So you got to imagine what's going through Judah's mind, right? She's a black widow. <laughs> I can't have. So he's got one more son, the youngest, Shelah. And he tells Tamar, look, uh, look uh, just go be with your father. And when Shelah is old enough, because he's too young right now, when he's old enough, then he will come and you guys can wed and carry on the family line. But it doesn't happen. She waits. He doesn't fulfill his promise. So she takes matters into her own hands. She pretends to be a prostitute, dresses up, right? Solicit Judah, right? And what happens? She becomes pregnant. He gives her some pledges, right? A few months later, all of a sudden, it's found out she's pregnant. He's going to condemn her to death, and she gives him the pledges, and all of a sudden, he realizes his guilt. Isn't it interesting, not just chronology-wise, but the fact that Tamar would be the first one mentioned in the genealogy. I was a little slow on the uptake, but this is really cool, isn't it? This is the grace of God. This is the mercy of God. Then we got Rahab, ex-prostitute. We know this. Ruth, who was a Gentile Moabite, so therefore by a Jew she was considered to be a dog. Not worthy to eat the scraps off a Jew's table. So this is how they saw them. And yet they're in the line of the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine how offensive this is going to be to Matthew's readers, right? When they're reading this and they see this stuff. One, you have women in here. That's not done. Not only that, but they're all foreign women, right? You have Gentiles in here. You have dogs in here. They can't be a part of the Messianic line, the line of David. And yes, they are. Yes, they are. And then there's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the adulteress. Now, 
I'll come back to her in a moment. The other thing that struck me about this genealogy is in regards to Jesus' family tree, and yes, I got a little creative, the knots in the tree were not so good. Abraham, the father of faith, and yet, Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with him. Yes, promises that I'm going to make you a great nation. All of a sudden, there's a famine, and what does Abraham do? He goes down into Egypt, right? We have a series of failures by Abraham. Lies to Pharaoh, tells him his wife's his sister, right? Repeats it again with Abimelech. So here is this man of faith, but yet sometimes <laughs> not so strong in the faith, right? Not so trusting of God to do. We have David. We all know his sins. Psalm 51, go read the condition of his heart, right? And his repentance afterwards. And that's always struck me. That psalm sticks out in my head all the time because of the statement that he makes. Against you and you alone, our Lord, have I sinned, right? This is to, towards God. And it's like, yeah, but what about the husband? And what about the wife Bathsheba? And what about how you did this, right? But ultimately, that sin was against God. Put my sin in perspective, right? So we know these individuals, right? We, we know the things that come out of this. But here's what's interesting to me, and I'll just give you this tidbit. In verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now here's what's interesting. Your English translations have her name Bathsheba, but in the Greek text, they are not there. It's not present. Literally in the Greek text, it says in verse 6, it states, her of the Uriah. Her name isn't even mentioned. In other words, Matthew highlights the sin and the grievousness of it, right? Because when David committed adultery, what did he do? He tried to cover up by killing Uriah. And yet here they are <laughs> in the messianic line. The Messiah. This is his family tree. We all have these kinds of stories in our families, don't we? Some amazing parts to the family tree. I remember my grandma Holly came to live with us, and so she was sharing with me our family tree from her side of the family, my mom's mom. And so Grandma Holly sharing with me that before she was married, before she became Grandma Holly, she said, you know that you are related to the actor from Rockford Files, James Garner. And I was like, wow, cool, right? Something interesting. Some of us, we have that in our lineage. There are interesting things that, about the, the family tree that we are part of, but sometimes we have those stories we don't want to tell anybody. We don't want to share about our family tree. Here are some of those knots in the tree, but Matthew reveals them to us. He opens them up for us so that we can understand the grace of God. This is the proclamation that we make as a church to the world. That there is no mess so big in your life that God's grace cannot meet that. There is no sin too big that God's grace cannot remedy and restore you. There is nothing so big that God cannot handle that and bring transformation in your life. So I'll give you one of the stories from my family tree. 
So my Grandma Holly, she was married twice. Before she became Grandma Holly, she was married to her first husband. Lived in Oklahoma. And this was before she was a believer. And they didn't make much. She would go out into the cotton fields. And so the story is, is that she would go out and she would take my Aunt Deanie, my mom's sister, and she would strap my Aunt Deanie to her back and she would go out in the cotton fields and she would pick cotton all day. Now her husband, he was a louse. He was all about the wine and the women. So he would take the money that was made and he would go spend it on wine and women. So finally my grandma got so sick and tired of this that she chased him away looking down the barrel of a shotgun and then she burnt his house to the ground. Now that was before she was saved. She met my grandpa Holly and the Lord saved both of them by his grace. And they served him faithfully all the years of their life till he took them home. He pastored and she played the piano. We all have these stories in our family trees, do we not? We all are one of those stories in our family tree, are we not? I am one of the knots in the family tree. But God is gracious and God is merciful. Jesus' family tree and the story it tells, and we end with this, this family tree tells us of God's wonderful grace. It tells of God's amazing love. It tells of God's bountiful mercy. And it tells of the gracious gift of His Son, our Savior, God with us. This is the message we take to the world. As you reflect on the coming of Christ, right, in this time of the year, don't blow past the genealogy. Take some time to dwell on it. There's some more amazing truths that are there that we haven't looked at. And allow God to unfold the story for us, the truth of our salvation in Christ our Savior. But we are all a part of that family tree now, are we not? Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us, for your grace and mercy in our lives. We're so thankful for the revelation that you've given us, the truths that you have revealed through Matthew and others, Father. The transformation just in his own life from Levi the tax collector to Matthew the disciple of the Messiah to the writer of Scripture. From a man who stole and embezzled and cheated to a man who gave him his life and service and sacrifice for the gospel of Christ. It's only through your grace and mercy we are all here this morning. We're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for the sending of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and for all the blessings that we have in him. May we daily count those blessings. May we daily remember the things that you have done for us in and through him. May we remember the great truths of your redemptive plan that you have been carrying out through time and space for all of these generations, Father, and even now, in and through our lives and the lives of others. We're so thankful for your amazing love, your wonderful and glorious grace, and the gift of your Son, our Savior, the Son of your love, and it's his name we pray.